Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 8. Having completed her English lesson, Maria Elena Gonzalez went home with a plastic shopping bag full of precisely damaged clothes and a small paper bag containing cherry muffins for her two girls. When she closed the front door and turned away from it, Agnes bumped her swollen belly into Joey. His eyebrows shot up, and he put his hands on her distended abdomen, as if she were more fragile than a robin's egg, and more valuable than one by Fabergé. Now? he asked. I'd like to tidy up the kitchen first. Pleadingly, Aggie, no! He reminded her of the worry bear from a book she had already bought for her baby's collection. The worry bear carries worries in his pockets under his Panama hat and two and gold lockets. Carries worries on his back and under his arms. Nevertheless, dear old Worry Bear has his charms. Agnes's contractions were getting more frequent and slightly more severe, so she said, All right, but let me go tell Edom and Jacob that we're leaving. Edom and Jacob Isaacson were her older brothers, who lived in two small apartments above the four-car garage in the back of the property. I've already told them, Joey said, willing away from her and yanking open the door of the foyer closet with such force that she thought he would tear it off its hinges. He produced her coat as if by ledger domain. Magically, she found her arms in the sleeves and the collar around her neck, though given her size lately, putting on anything other than a hat usually requires strategy and persistence. When she turned to him again, he had already slipped into his jacket and snatched the car keys off the foyer table. He put his left hand under her right arm, as though Agnes were feeble and in need of support, and he swept her through a door, onto the front porch. He didn't pause to lock the house behind them. Bright Beach in 1965 was as free of criminals as it was untroubled by lumbering brontosaurus. The afternoon was winding down, and the lowering sky seemed to be drawn steadily towards the earth by threads of gray light the real westward, ever faster, over the horizon spool. The air smelled like rain waiting to happen. The beetle green Pontiac waited in the driveway, with the shine that tempted nature to throw around some bad weather. Joey always kept a spotless car, and he probably wouldn't have had time to earn a living if he had resided in some shine-spoiling climate rather than in Southern California. Are you all right? he asked as he opened the passenger's door and helped her into the car. Right as rain. You sure? Good as gold. The inside of the Pontiac smelled pleasantly of lemons, though the rearview mirror was not hung with one of those tacky decorative deodorizers. The seats, regularly treated with leather soap, were softer and more supple than they had been when the car had shipped out of Detroit, and the instrument panel sparkled. As Joey opened the driver's door and got in behind the steering wheel, he said, Okay? 
It's fine as silk. You look pale. Fit as a fiddle. You're mocking me, aren't you? You beg so sweetly to be mocked. How can I possibly withhold it from you? Just as Joey pulled his door shut, a contraction gripped Agnes. She grimaced, sucking air sharply between her clenched teeth. Oh no, said the worry bear. Oh no. Good heaven, sweetie, relax. This isn't ordinary pain. This is happy pain. Our little girl's going to be with us before the day is done. Little boy. Trust a mother's intuition. A father's got some too. He was so nervous that the key rattled interminably against the ignition plate before, at last, he was able to insert it. Should be a boy, because then you'll always have a man around the house. You plan to run off with some blonde? He couldn't get the car started, because he repeatedly tried to turn the key in the wrong direction. You know what I mean. I'm going to be around a long time yet, but women outlive men by several years. Actuarial tables aren't wrong. Always the insurance agent. Well, it's true, he said, finally turning the key in the proper direction and firing up the engine. Gonna sell me a policy? I didn't sell anyone else today. Gotta make a living. You all right? Scared, she said. Instead of shifting the car in the drive, he placed one of his bearish hands over both of her hands. Something feel wrong? I'm afraid you'll drive us straight into a tree. He looked hurt. I'm the safest driver in Bright Beach. My auto rates prove it. Not today. If it takes you as long to get the car in the gear as it did to slip that key into the ignition, our little girl will be sitting up and saying, Dada, by the time we get to the hospital. Little boy. Just calm down. I am calm, he assured her. He released the handbrake, shifted the car into reverse instead of into drive, and backed away from the street, along the side of the house. Startled, he braked to a halt. Agnes didn't say anything until Joey had taken three or four deep, slow breaths. And then she pointed at the windshield. The hospital's that way. He regarded her sheepishly. You all right? Our little girl's going to walk backwards her whole life if you drive in reverse all the way to the hospital. If it is a little girl, she's going to be exactly like you, he said. I don't think I can handle two of you. We'll keep you young. With great deliberation, Joey shifted gears and followed the driveway to the street where he peered left and then right with the squint-eyed suspicion of a marine commando scouting dangerous territory. He turned right. Make sure Edom delivers the pies in the morning, Agnes reminded him. Jacob said he wouldn't mind doing it for once. Jacob scares people, Agnes said. No one would eat a pie that Jacob delivered without having it tested at a lab. Needles of rain knitted the air and quickly embroidered silvery patterns on the blacktop. Switching on the windshield wipers, Joey said, That's the first time I've ever heard you admit that either of your brothers is odd. Not odd, dear. They're just a little eccentric. Like water's a little wet. Frowning at him, she said, You don't mind them around, do you, Joey? They're eccentric, but I love them very much. So do I, he admitted. He smiled and shook his head. Those two make a worrywart life insurance salesman like me seem just as lighthearted as a schoolgirl. You're turning into an excellent driver after all, she said, winking at him. He was, in fact, a first-rate driver with an impeccable record at the age of 30. No traffic citations, no accidents. His skill behind the wheel and his inborn caution didn't help him, however, when a Ford pickup ran a red traffic light, braked too late, and slid at high speed into the driver's door to Pontiac.
Chapter 9 Rocking as if afloat on troubled waters, abused by an unearthly and tormented sound, Junior Kane imagined a gondola on a black river, a car dragon rising high at the bow as he had seen on a paperback fantasy novel featuring Vikings in a longboat. The gondolier in this case was not a Viking, but a tall figure in a black robe, his face concealed within a voluminous hood. He didn't pull the boat with a traditional oar, but with what appeared to be human bones wielded into a staff. The river's course was entirely underground, with the stone vault for a sky, and fires burned on the far shore. Whence came the tormenting wail, a cry filled with rage, anguish, and fearsome need. The truth, as always, was not supernatural. He opened his eyes and discovered that he was in the back of an ambulance. Evidently, this the one intended for Naomi. They'll be sending a morgue wagon for her now. A paramedic, rather than a boatman or a demon, was attending him. The well was a siren. His stomach felt as if he had been clubbed mercilessly by a couple of professional thugs with big fists and lead pipes. With each beat, his heart seemed to press painfully against constricting bands, and his throat was raw. A two-pronged oxygen feed was snugged against his nasal septum. The cool, sweet flow was welcome. He could still taste the vile mess of which he had rid himself, however, and his tongue and teeth felt as if they were coated with mold. At least he wasn't vomiting anymore. Immediately, at the thought of regurgitation, his abdominal muscles contracted like those of a laboratory frog zapped by an electric current, and he choked on a rising horror. What is happening to me? The paramedic snatched the oxygen feed from his patient's nose and quickly elevated his head providing a purge towel to catch a thin ejecta. Junior's body betrayed him as before, and also in new ways that terrified and humiliated him, involving every bodily fluid except cerebrospinal. For a while, inside that rocking ambulance, he wished that he were in a gondola upon the waters of the Styx, his misery at an end. When the convulsive seizure passed, he collapsed back on the spattered pillow, shuddering at the stench rising from his hideously foul clothes. Junior was suddenly struck by an idea that either was sheer madness or a brilliant deductive insight. Naomi, the hateful bitch, she poisoned me. The paramedic, fingers pressed to the radial artery in Junior's right wrist, must have felt a rocket quick acceleration in his pulse rate. Junior and Naomi had taken their dried apricots from the same bag, reached in the bag without looking, shook them out into the palms of their hands. She could not have control which pieces of fruit he received and which she ate. Did she poison herself as well? Was it her intention to kill him and commit suicide? Not cheerful, life-loving, high-spirited, church-going Naomi. She saw every day through a golden haze that came from the sun in her heart. He once spoke in that very sentiment to her. Golden haze, sun in the heart. His words had melted her. Tears had sprung into her eyes, and the sex had been better than ever. More likely the poison had been in the cheese sandwich, or in his water bottle. His heart rebelled at the thought of lovely Naomi committing such treachery. Sweet-tempered, generous, honest, kind Naomi had surely been incapable of murdering anyone, least of all the man she loved. Unless she hadn't loved him. The paramedic pumped the inflation cuff with his fig mammometer, and Junior's blood pressure was most likely high enough to induce a stroke driven skyward by the thought that Naomi's love had been a lie. Maybe she had just married him for his... No, that was a dead end. He didn't have any money. She had loved him all right. She had adored him. 
Worshipped would not be too strong of a word. Now that the possibility of treachery had occurred to Junior, however, he couldn't rid himself of suspicion. Good Naomi, who gave immeasurably more to everyone than she took, will forevermore stand in a shadow of doubt in his memory. <laughs> After all, you can never really know anyone. Not really know every last corner of someone's mind or heart. No human being was perfect. Even someone of saintly habits and selfless behavior might be a monster in his heart, filled with unspeakable desires, which he might act upon only once or never. He was all but certain that he himself, for example, would not kill another wife. For one thing, considering that his marriage to Naomi was now stained by the most terrible of doubts, he couldn't imagine how he might ever again trust anyone sufficiently to take the wedding vows. Junior closed his weary eyes and gratefully submitted as the paramedic wiped his greasy face and his crusted lips with a cool, damp cloth. Naomi's beautiful countenance rose in his mind, and she looked beautific for a moment. But then he thought he saw a certain slyness in her angelic smile, a disturbing glint of calculation in her once-loving eyes. Losing his cherished wife was devastating, a wound beyond all hope of healing. But this was even worse, having his bright image of her stained by suspicion. Naomi was no longer present to provide comfort and consolation, and now Junior didn't even have untainted memories of her to sustain him. As always, it was not the action that troubled him, but the aftermath. This soiling of Naomi's memory was a sadness so poignant, so terrible, that he wondered if he could endure it. He felt his mouth tremble and go soft, not with the urge to throw up again, but with something like grief, if not grief itself. His eyes filled with tears. Perhaps the paramedic had given him an injection, a sedative. As the howling ambulance rocked along on this most momentous day, Junior Kane wept profoundly, but quietly, and achieved temporary peace and a dreamless sleep. When he woke, he was in a hospital bed, his upper body slightly elevated. The only illumination was provided by a single window, an ashen light too dreary to be called a glow, trimmed in a drab ribbon by the tilted blades of a Venetian blind. Most of the room lay in shadows. He still had a sour taste in his mouth, although it was not as disgusting as it had been. All the odors were wonderfully clean and bracing. Antiseptics, floor wax, freshly laundered bed sheets, without a whiff of bodily fluids. He was immensely weary, limp. He felt depressed, as though a great weight were piled on him. Even keeping his eyes open was tiring. An IV rack stood beside the bed, dripping fluid into his vein, replacing the electrolytes that he had lost through vomiting, most likely medicating him with the antiemetic as well. His right arm was securely strapped to a supporting board to prevent him from bending his elbow and accidentally tearing out the needle. This was a two-bed unit. The second bed was empty. Junior thought he was alone, but just when he felt capable of summoning the energy to shift to a more comfortable position, he heard a man clear his throat. <clears> throat> the flimmy sound had come from beyond the foot of the bed, from the right corner of the room. Instinctively, Junior knew that anyone watching over him in the dark could not be a person of the best intentions. Doctors and nurses didn't monitor their patients with the lights off. He was relieved that he hadn't moved his head or made a sound. He wanted to understand as much of the situation as possible before revealing that he was awake. Because the upper part of the hospital bed was somewhat raised, he didn't have to lift his head from the pillow to study the corner where the phantom waited. He peered beyond the IV rack, 
past the foot of the adjacent bed. Junior was lying in the darkest end of the room, farther from the window, but the corner in question was almost equally shrouded in gloom. He stared for a long time, until his eyes began to ache, before he was at last able to make out the vague, angular lines of an armchair. And in the chair, a shape as lacking in detail as that of the robed and hooded gondolier on the sticks. He was uncomfortable, achy, thirsty, but he remained utterly still and observant. After a while, he realized that the sense of oppression with which he had awakened was not entirely a psychological symptom. Something lay heavy across his abdomen, and it was cold. So cold, in fact, that it had numbed his middle to the extent that he hadn't immediately felt the chill of it. Shivers coursed through him. He clenched his jaw to prevent his teeth from chattering and thereby alerting the man in the chair. Although he never took his eyes off the corner, Junior became preoccupied with trying to puzzle out what was draped across his midsection. The mysterious observer made him sufficiently nervous that he couldn't order his thoughts as well as usual, and the effort to prevent the shivers from shaking a sound out of him only further interfered with his ability to reason. The longer that he was unable to identify the frigid object, the more alarmed he became. He almost cried out when his mind oozed an image of Naomi's dead body, now past the whitest shade of pale, as gray as the faint light at the window, and turning pale green in a few places. And cold, all the heat of life gone from her flesh, which is not yet simmering with any of the heat of the decomposition that was soon enlivening it again. No. Ridiculous. Naomi wasn't slumped across him. He wasn't sharing his bed with a corpse. That was DC comic stuff. Something from a yellowed issue of Tales from the Crypt. And it wasn't Naomi sitting in the chair either. Not Naomi come to him from the morgue to wreak vengeance. The dead don't live again. Neither here nor in some world beyond. Nonsense. Even if such ignorant superstitions could be true, the visitor was far too quiet and too patient to be the living dead incarnation of a murdered wife. This was a predatory silence, an animal cunning, not a supernatural hush. This was the elegant stillness of a panther in the brush, the coiled tension of a snake too vicious to give a warning rattle. Suddenly, Junior intuited the identity of the man in the chair. Beyond question, this was the plainclothes police officer with the birthmark, the salt and pepper brush cut hair, the pan flat face, the thick neck. Instantly to Junior's memory came the eye floating in the port wine stain, the hard gray iris like a nail in the bloody palm of a crucified man. Draped across his midsection, the terrible cold weight had chilled his flesh. But now his bone marrow prickled with ice at the thought of the birthmark detective sitting silently in the dark, watching. Junior would have preferred dealing with Naomi, dead and risen and seriously pissed, rather than with this dangerously patient man. Chapter 10. With a crash as loud as the dire crack of heaven opening on Judgment Day, the Ford pickup broadsided the Pontiac. Agnes couldn't hear the first fraction of her scream, and not much of the rest of it either, as the car slid sideways, tipped and rolled. The rain-washed streets shimmered greasily under the tires, and the intersection lay halfway up a long hill, so gravity was aligned with fate against them. The driver's side of the Pontiac lifted. Beyond the windshield... The main drag of bright beach tilted crazily. The pasture side slammed against the pavement. Glass in the door next to Agnes cracked, dissolved. Pebbly blacktop like a dragon flank of glistening scales hissed past a broken window. 
inches from her face. Before settling out from home, Joey had buckled his lap belt, but because of Agnes's condition, she hadn't engaged her own. She rammed against the door, pain shot through her right shoulder, and she thought, oh lord, the baby. Bracing her feet against the floorboards, clutching the seat in her left hand, fiercely gripping the door handle with her right. She prayed, prayed that the baby would be alright, that she would live at least long enough to bring her child into this wonderful world, into this grand creation of endless and exquisite beauty, whether she herself lived past the birth or not. Onto its roof now, the Pontiac spun as it slid, grinding loudly against the blacktop, and regardless of how determinedly Agnes held on, she was being pulled out of her seat, toward the inverted ceiling and also backwards. Her forehead knocked hard into the thin overhead padding, and her back wrenched against the headrest. She could hear herself screaming once more, but only briefly, because the car was either struck again by the pickup or hit by other traffic, or perhaps it collided with a parked vehicle. But whatever the cause, the breath was knocked out of her, and her screams became ragged gasps. This second impact turned half a roll into a full 360. The Pontiac crunched onto the driver's side and jolted, at last, onto its four tires, jumped a curb, and crumpled its front bumper against the wall of a brightly painted surfboard shop, shattering a display window. Worry Bear, big as ever behind the steering wheel, slumped sideways in his seat, with his head tipped towards her. His eyes rolled to one side and his gaze fixed upon her, blood streaming from his nose. He said, The baby? All right, I think, all right, Agnes gasped, but she was terrified that she was wrong, that the child would be stillborn or enter the world damaged. He didn't move, the worry bear, but lay in that curious and surely uncomfortable position, arms slack at his sides, head lolling as though it was too heavy to lift. Let me see you. She was shaking and so afraid, not thinking clearly, and for a moment she didn't understand what he meant what he wanted, and then he saw that the window on his side of the car was shattered too, and that the door beyond him was badly torqued, twisted in its frame. Worse, the side of the Pontiac had burst inward when the pickup plowed into them. With the steel snarl and sheet metal teeth, it had bitten into Joey, bitten deep. A mechanical shark swimming out of the wet day, shattering ribs, seeking his warm heart. Let me see you. Joey couldn't raise his head, couldn't turn more directly towards her, because his spine had been damaged, perhaps severed, and he was paralyzed. Oh dear God, she whispered, and although she had always been a strong woman who stood on a rock of faith, who drew hope as well as air with every breath, she was as weak now as the unborn child in her womb, sick with fear. She leaned forward in her seat and towards him so he could see her more directly, and when she put one trembling hand against his cheek... His head dropped forward on neck muscles as limp as rags, his chin against his chest. Cold, wind-driven rain slashed through the missing windows, and voices rose in the street as people ran towards the Pontiac. Thunder in the distance, and on the air was the ozone scent of the storm and the more subtle and more terrible odor of blood. But none of these hard details could make the moment seem real to Agnes, who, in her deepest nightmares, had never felt more like a dreamer than she felt now. She cupped his face in both of her hands and was barely able to lift his head for fear of what she would see. His eyes were strangely radiant, as she had never seen them before, as if the shining angel who would guide him elsewhere had already entered his body and was with him to begin the journey.
In a voice free of pain and fear, he said, I was loved by you. Not understanding, thinking that he was inexplicably asking if she loved him, she said, Yes, of course, you silly bear, you stupid man, of course I love you. It was the only dream that mattered, Joey said. You loving me. It was a good life because of you. She tried to tell him that he was going to make it. That he would be with her for a very long time. That the universe was not so cruel as to take him at 30 with all their lives ahead of them. But the truth was here to see and she could not lie to him. With her rock of faith under her and breathing hope as much as ever, she was nevertheless unable to be as strong for him as she wanted to be. She felt her face go soft, her mouth tremble, and when she tried to repress a sob, it burst from her with wretched force. Holding his precious face between her hands, she kissed him. She met his gaze and furiously blinked away her tears, for she wanted to be clear-sighted, to be looking into his eyes, to see him the truest part of him in there beyond his eyes until that very last moment when she could not have him anymore. People were at the car windows, struggling to open the buckled doors, but Agnes refused to acknowledge them. Matching her fierce attention with a sudden intensity of his own, Joey said, Bartholomew. They knew no one named Bartholomew, and she had never heard the name from him before, but she knew what he wanted. He was speaking of the son he would never see. If it's a boy, Bartholomew, she promised. It's a boy, Joey assured her, as though he had been given a vision. Thick blood sluiced over his lower lip, down his chin, bright arterial blood. Baby, no, she pleaded. She was lost in his eyes. She wanted to pass through his eyes as Alice had passed through a looking glass, followed a beautiful radiance that was fading now. Go with him through the door that had been opened for him and accompany him out of this rain-swept day into grace. This was his door, however, not hers. She did not possess a ticket to ride the train that had come for him. He boarded, and the train was gone, and with it, the light in his eyes. She lowered her mouth to his, kissing him one last time, and the taste of his blood was not bitter, but sacred. Chapter 11 While the slats of ash-gray light slowly lost their meager luster, and sable shadows mystaticized in sinister profusion, the sentinel silence remained unbroken between Junior Kane and the birthmarked man. What might have become a waiting game of epic duration was ended when the door to the room swung inward, and a doctor in a white lab coat entered from the corridor. He was backlight by fluorescent glare, his face in shadow, like a figure in a dream. Junior closed his eyes at once and let his jaw sag, breathing through his mouth, feigning sleep. I'm afraid you shouldn't be here, the doctor said softly. I haven't disturbed him, said the visitor, taking his cue from the doctor and keeping his voice low. I'm sure you haven't, but my patient needs absolute quiet and rest. So do I said the visitor, and Junior almost frowned at this peculiar response, wondering what was meant in addition to what was merely said. The two men introduced themselves. The physician was Dr. Jim Parkhurst. His manner was easy and affable, and a soothing voice, either by nature or by calculation, was as healing as balm. 
the birthmarked man identified himself as Detective Thomas Vanadium. He did not use the familiar diminutive form of his name, as had the doctor, and his voice was as uninflected as his face was flat and homely. Junior suspected that no one other than this man's mother called him Tom. He was probably detective to some, and vanadium to most who knew him. What's wrong with Mr. Kane here? Vanadium asked. He suffered an unusually strong episode of hematemesis. Vomiting blood. One of the paramedics used the word, but what's the cause? Well, the blood wasn't dark and acidic, so it didn't come from his stomach. It was bright and alkaline. It could have arisen in the esophagus, but most likely, it's pharyngeal in origin. From his throat. Junior's throat felt torn inside, as though he had been snacking on cactus. That's correct, Parkhurst said. Probably one or more small blood vessels ruptured from the extreme violence of the amesis. Amesis? Vomiting. I'm told it was an exceptionally violent emetic episode. He spewed like a fire hose, Vanadium said matter-of-factly. How colorfully put. In a monotone that gave new meaning to deadpan, the detective added, I'm the only one who was there who doesn't have a dry cleaning bill. Their voices remained soft, and neither man approached the bed. Junior was glad for the chance to eavesdrop, not only because he hoped to learn the nature and depth of Vanadium's suspicions, but also because he was curious and concerned about the cause of the disgusting and embarrassing episode that had landed him here. Is the bleeding serious? Vanadium inquired. No, it stopped. The thing now was to prevent a reoccurrence of the amesis, which could trigger more bleeding. He's getting anti-nausea medication and a replacement electrolytes intravenously and we've applied ice bags to his midsection to help reduce the chance of further abdominal muscle spasms and help control inflammation. Ice bags. Not dad Naomi. Just ice. Junior almost laughed at his tendency to morbidness and self-dramatization. The living dad had not come to get him. Just some rubber ice bags. So the vomiting caused the bleeding, Vanadium said. But what caused the vomiting? We'll do further testing, of course, but not until he's been stabilized at least 12 hours. Personally, I don't think we'll find any physical cause. Most likely, this was psychological. Acute nervous amesis caused by severe anxiety, the shock of losing his wife, seeing her die. Exactly! The shock! The devastating loss! Junior felt it now, anew, and was afraid he might betray himself with tears, although he seemed to be done with vomiting. He had learned many things about himself on this momentous day, that he was more spontaneous than he had ever before realized, that he was willing to make grievous short-term sacrifice for long-term gain, that he was bold and daring. But perhaps the most important lesson was that he was a more sensitive person than he had previously perceived himself to be, and that this sensitivity, while admirable, was liable to undo him unexpectedly and at inconvenient times. To Dr. Parkhurst, Vanadium said, in my work, I see lots of people who have just lost loved ones. None of them has ever puked like Vesuvius. It's an uncommon reaction, the physician acknowledged, but not so uncommon as to be rare. Could he have taken something to make himself vomit? Parkhurst seemed genuinely perplexed. Why on earth would he do that? To fake acute nervous amesis. Still pretending sleep? 
Junior delighted in the realization that the detective himself had dragged a red herring across the trail and was now busily following this distracting scent. Vanadium continued in his characteristic drone, a tone at odds with the colorful content of his speech. A man takes one look at his wife's body, starts to sweat harder than a copulating hog, spews like a frat boy at the end of a long beer chugging contest, and chucks until he chucks up blood. That's not the response to your average murderer. Murder? They say the railing was rotten. It was. But maybe that's not the whole story. Anyway, we know the usual poses these guys strike. The attitudes they think are deceptive and clever. Most of them are so obvious, they might as well just stick their will in a light socket and save us a lot of trouble. This, however, is a new approach. It tends to make you want to believe in the poor guy. Hadn't the sheriff's department already reached a determination of accidental death? Parkhurst asked. They're good men. Good cops, every last one of them, said Vanadium. And if they got more pity in them than I do, that's a virtue, not a shortcoming. What could Mr. Kane have taken to make himself vomit? Listening to you long enough would do it, Junior thought. Parkhurst protested. But if the sheriff's department thinks it's an accident... You know how we operate in this state, doctor. We don't waste our energy fighting over jurisdiction. We cooperate. The sheriff can decide not to put a lot of his limited resources into this, and no one will blame him. He can call it an accident and close the case, and he won't get his hackles up if we, at the state level, still want to poke around a little. Even though the detective was on the wrong track, Junior was beginning to feel aggrieved. As any good citizen, he was willing, even eager, to cooperate with responsible policemen who conducted their investigation by the book. This Thomas Vanadium, however, in spite of his monotonous tone and drab appearance, gave out the vibe of a fanatic. Any reasonable person would agree that the line between legitimate police inquiry and harassment was hair thin. Vanadium asked Jim Parkhurst, isn't there something called Ipecac? Yes, the dried root of a Brazilian plant, the Ipecacuana. It induces vomiting with great effectiveness. The active ingredient is a powdered white alkaloid named ametine. This is an over-the-counter drug, isn't it? Yes, in syrup form. It's a good item for your home medicine chest in case your child ever swallows poison and you need to purge it from them quickly. Could have used a bottle of that myself last November. You were poisoned? In that slow, flat delivery with which Junior was becoming increasingly impatient, Detective Vanadium said, We all were, Doctor. It was another election year, remember? More than once during that campaign, I could have chugged Ipecac. What else would work if I wanted to have a good vomit? Well, apomorphine hydrochloride. Harder to get than Ipecac. Yes, sodium chloride will work too. Common salt. Mix enough of it with water and it's generally effective. Harder to detect than Ipecac or apomorphine hydrochloride. Detect? Parkhurst asked. In the spew. In the vomitus, you mean. Sorry, I forgot we're in polite company. Yes, I mean in the vomitus. Well, the lab could detect abnormally high salt levels, but that wouldn't matter in court. He could say he ate a lot of salty foods. Salt water would have been too cumbersome anyway. He'd have to drink a lot of it shortly before he heaved, but he was surrounded by cops with good reason to keep an eye on him. Does Epicac come in capsule form? I suppose anyone could fill some empty gelatin capsules with the syrup, said Parkhurst. But 
roll your own, so to speak. Then he could palm a few of them, swallow them without water, and the reaction would be delayed maybe long enough until the capsule dissolved in the stomach. The affable physician sounded as though he was at last beginning to find the detective's unlikely theory and persistent question to be tedious. I seriously doubt that a dose of Epicac would produce such a violent response as in this case. Not pharyngeal hemorrhage, for God's sake. Epicac is a safe product. If he took triple or quadruple the usual dose. Wouldn't matter, Parkhurst insisted. A lot has pretty much the same effect as a little. You can't overdose because what it does makes you throw up. And when you throw up, you purge yourself for the Epicac along with everything else. Then, whether a literal or not, it'll be in a spew. Excuse me. His vomitus. If you're expecting the hospital to provide a sample of the ejecta, I'm afraid... Ejecta? The vomitus. Vanadium said, I'm an easily confused layman, doctor. If we can't stick to one word for it, I'm just going to go back to spew. The paramedics will dispose of the contents of the amesis basin if they use one. And if there are soiled towels or sheeting, they might have already been laundered. That's all right, Vanadium said. I bagged some at the scene. Bagged? As evidence. Junior felt unspeakably violated. This was outrageous. The inarguably personal very private contents of his stomach, scooped into a plastic evidence bag without his permission, without even his knowledge. What's next? A stool sample pried out of him while he was knocked unconscious by morphine? This barf gathering surely was in violation of the Constitution of the United States, a clear contravention of the guarantee against self-incrimination, a slap in the face of justice, a violation of the rights of man. He had not, of course, taken Ipecac or any other emetic, so they wouldn't find any evidence to use against him. He was angry nonetheless. That's a matter of principle. Perhaps Dr. Parkhurst, too, was disturbed by this fascistic and fanatical spew sampling because he became brusque. I have a few appointments to keep. By the time I make evening rounds, I expect Mr. Kane to be conscious, but I'd rather you didn't disturb him until tomorrow. Instead of responding to the physician's request, Vanadium said... One more question, doctor. If this was acute nervous amesis, as you suggest, couldn't there have been another cause beside his anguish over the traumatic loss of his wife? I couldn't imagine any more obvious source of extreme anxiety. Guilt, said the detective. If he killed her, wouldn't an overwhelming sense of guilt be as likely as anguish to cause acute nervous amesis? I couldn't say with any confidence. None of my degrees is in psychology. Humor me with an educated guess, doctor. I'm a healer, not a prosecutor. I'm not in the habit of making accusations, especially not against my own patients. Wouldn't dream of asking you to make it a habit. Just this one time. If anguish, why not guilt? Dr. Parkhurst considered the question, which he ought to have dismissed out of hand. Well, yes, I suppose so. Spineless, unethical, quack bastard, Junior thought bitterly. I believe I'll just wait here until Mr. Kane wakes, Vanadium said. I have nothing more pressing to do. An authoritative note came into Parkhurst's voice, that emperor of the universe tone that was probably taught in a special medical school course on intimidation, though he was striking this attitude a little too late to be entirely effective. My patient is in a fragile state. He mustn't be agitated, detective. I really don't want you questioning him until tomorrow at the earliest.
All right, of course. I won't question them. I'll just observe. Judging by the sounds Vanadium made, Junior figured that the cop had settled once more into the armchair. Junior hoped that Parkhurst was more skilled at the practice of medicine than he was at browbeating. After a long hesitation, the physician said, You can switch on that lamp. I'll be fine. It won't disturb the patient. I like the dark, Vanadium replied. This is most irregular. Isn't it, though? Vanadium agreed. Finally, wimping out completely, Parkhurst left the room. The heavy door sighed softly shut, silencing the squeak of rubber sole shoes, the swish of starched uniforms, and other noises made by the busy nurses in the corridor. Mrs. Kane's little boy felt small, weak, sorry for himself, and terribly alone. The detective was still here, but his presence only aggravated Junior's sense of isolation. He missed Naomi. She'd always known exactly the right thing to say or do, improving his mood with a few words or with just her touch when he was feeling down. Chapter 12 Thunder rattled like hoofbeats, and dappled gray clouds drove eastward in the slow-motion gallop of horses in a dream. Bright Beach was blurred and distorted by rain as full of tricks as funhouse mirrors. While sliding towards twilight, the January afternoon seemed almost to have slipped out of the familiar world into a strange dimension. With Joey dead beside her and the baby possibly dying in her womb, trapped in the Pontiac because the doors were torqued in the frames and wedged shut, wrecked by pain from the battering she had taken, Agnes refused to indulge in either fear or tears. Or tears for fears. I mean, she could shout. Shout. You know, let it all out. Because things like this are the things you could do without. Come on. I'm talking to you. She gave herself to prayer instead. Asking for the wisdom to understand why this was happening to her. And for the strength to cope with her pain and with her loss. Witnesses, first to the scene, unable to open either door of the coop, spoke encouragingly to her through the broken-out windows. She knew some of them, not others. They were all well-meaning and concerned, some without rain gear and getting soaked. But their natural curiosity lent a special shine to their eyes and made Agnes feel as though she were an animal on exhibit, without dignity. Her most private agony exposed her to entertainment of strangers. When the first police arrived, followed closely by an ambulance, they discussed the possibility of taking Agnes out of the car through the missing windshield. Considering that the space was pinched by the crumpled roof, however, and in light of Agnes's pregnancy and imminent second-stage labor, the severe contortions involved in this extraction would be too dangerous. Rescuers appear with hydraulic pry bars and metal-cutting saws. Civilians were shepherded back to the sidewalks. Thunder less distant now. Around her, the crackle of police radios, the clang of tools being ready, the scroll of a stiffening wind, dizzying these sounds. She couldn't shut her ears against them, and when she closed her eyes, she felt as though she were spinning. No scent of gasoline fouled the air. Apparently, the tank had not burst. Sudden immolation seemed unlikely, but only an hour ago so had Joey's untimely death. Rescuers encouraged her to move safely away from the passenger door, as far as possible, to avoid being inadvertently injured as they tried to break into her. She could go nowhere but to her dead husband. Huddling against Joey's body, his head lolling against her shoulder, Agnes thought crazily at her early dates and the first years of her marriage. 
They had occasionally gone to the drive-in, sitting close, holding hands as they watched John Wayne and the Searchers, David Niven and Around the World in 80 Days. They were so young then. Sure, they would live forever, and they were still young now. But for one of them, forever had arrived. A rescuer instructed her to close her eyes and turn her face away from the passenger's door. He shoved a quilted mover's blanket through the window and arranged his protective padding along her right side. Clutching the blanket, she thought of the funerary lap robes that sometimes covered the legs of the deceased in their caskets. For she felt half dead, both feet in this world, yet walking beside Joey on a strange road beyond. The hum, the buzz, the rattle, the grinding of machinery, power tools, sheet steel and tougher structure still snarling against the teeth of a metal cutting saw. Beside her, the pasture's door barked and shrieked as though alive, as though suffering, and these sounds were uncannily like the cries of torment that only Agnes could hear in the haunted chambers of her heart. The car shuddered, wrench still screamed, and a cry of triumph rose from the rescuers. A man with beautiful celadon eyes, his face beaded with jewels of rain, reached through the cutaway door and removed the blanket from Agnes. You're all right. We've got you now. His soft yet reverberant voice was so unearthly that his words seemed to convey an assurance more profound and more comforting than their surface meaning. This saving spirit retreated, and in his place came a young paramedic in a black and yellow rain slicker over hospital whites. Just want to be sure there's no spinal injury before we move you. Can you squeeze my hands? Squeezing as instructed, she said, my baby might be hurt. As though giving voice where worse fear made it come true, Agnes was seized by a contraction so painful that she cried out and clutched the paramedic's hands tightly enough to make him wince. She felt a peculiar swelling within, then an awful looseness, pressure followed at once by release. The gray pants of her jogging suit, speckled with rain that had blown in through the shattered windshield, were suddenly soaked. Her water had broken. Darker than water, another stain spread across the lap and down the leg of the pants. It was the color of port wine when filtered through the gray fabric of the jogging suit, but even in her semi-delirious state, she knew that she was not the vessel for a miracle birth, was not bringing forth the baby in a flush of wine, but in a gush of blood. From her reading, she knew the amniotic fluid should be clear. A few traces of blood and it should not necessarily be alarming, but here were more than traces. Here were thick, red-black streams. My baby, she pleaded. Already, another contraction racked her. So intense that the pain was not limited to her lower back and abdomen, but seared the length of her spine, like an electric current leaping vertebrae to vertebrae. Her breath pinched in her chest as though her lungs had collapsed. Second stage labor was supposed to last about 50 minutes in a woman bearing her first child. As little as 20 at the birth was not the first. But she sensed that Bartholomew was not going to come into the world by the book. Urgency gripped the paramedics. The rescuer's equipment and the pieces of the car door were dragged out of the way to make a path for a gurney, its wheels clattering across pavement littered with debris. Agnes was not fully aware of how she was lifted from the car, but she remembered looking back and seeing Joey's body huddled in the tangled shadows of the wreckage. Remember reaching towards him, desperate for the anchorage that he had always given her. And then she was on the gurney and moving. Dusk had arrived, strangling the day, and the throttle sky hung low, as blue-black as bruises. The streetlights had come on. Gouts of red light from pulsing emergency beacons alchemized the rain from teardrops into showers of blood. 
The rain was colder than it had been earlier, almost as icy as sleet. Or perhaps she was far hotter than before and felt the chill more keenly on her fevered skin. Each droplet seemed to hiss against her face, to sizzle against her hands, with which she gripped tightly her swollen abdomen, as if she could deny death the baby it had come to collect. As one of the two paramedics hurried to the ambulance van and scrambled into the driver's seat, Agnes suffered another contraction so severe that for a tremulous moment, at the peak of the agony, she almost lost consciousness. The second medic wheeled the gurney to the rear of the van, calling for one of the policemen to accompany him to the hospital. Apparently, he needed help if he were to deliver the baby and also stabilize Agnes while en route. She only half understood their frantic conversation, partly because the ability to concentrate was draining from her along with her lifeblood, but also because she was distracted by Joey. He was no longer in the wreck, but standing at the open rear door of the ambulance. He wasn't torn and broken any longer. His clothes weren't blood-stained. Indeed, the winter storm had dampened neither his hair nor his clothes. The rain appeared to slide away from him a millimeter before contact, as though the water and the man were composed of matter and antimatter that must neither repel each other or, on contact, trigger a cataclysmic blast that would shatter the very foundation of the universe. Joy was in his worry bear mode, brows furrowed, eyes pinched at the corners. Agnes wanted to reach out and touch him but she found that she didn't have the strength to raise her arm. She was no longer holding her belly either. Both hands lay at her sides, palms up, and even the simple act of curling her fingers required surprising effort and concentration. When she tried to speak to him, she could no more easily raise her voice than she could extend a hand to him. A policeman scrambled into the back of the van. As the paramedic shoved the gurney across the step-notch bumper, its collapsible legs scissored down. Agnes was rolled head first into the ambulance. Click, click. The wheeled stretcher locked in place. Either operating on first aid knowledge of his own or responding to an instruction from the medic, the cop slipped a foam pillow under Agnes's head. Without the pillow, she wouldn't have been able to lift her head to look towards the back of the ambulance. Joy was standing just outside, gazing in at her. His blue eyes were seized where sorrow sailed. Or perhaps the sorrow was less sadness than yearning. He had to move on but he was loath to begin this strange journey without her. As the storm failed to dampen Joey, so the rotating red and white beacons on the surrounding police vehicles did not touch him. The falling raindrops were diamonds and then rubies, diamonds and then rubies, but Joey was not illuminated by the light of this world. Agnes realized he was translucent, his skin like fine milk glass through which shone a light from elsewhere. The paramedic pulled shut the door, leaving Joey outside in the night, in the storm, in the wind, between worlds. With a jolt, the ambulance shifted gears, and they were rolling. Great hobnail wheels of pain turned through Agnes, driving her in the darkness for a moment. When pale light came to her eyes again, she heard the paramedic and the cop talking anxiously as they worked on her, but she couldn't understand their words. They seemed to be speaking not just a foreign tongue, but an ancient language unheard on earth for a thousand years. Embarrassment flushed her when she realized the paramedic had cut away the pants of her jogging suit. She was naked from the waist down. Into her fevered mind came an image of a milk glass infant, as translucent as Joey at the back door of the ambulance. Fearing that this vision meant her child would be stillborn, she said, My baby, but no sound escaped her. Pain again, but not a mere contraction, 
Such an excruciation, unendurable. The hobnailed wills ground through her once more, as though she were being broken on a medieval torture device. She could see the two men talking, their rain-wet faces serious and scarred with worry, but she was no longer able to hear their voices. In fact, she could hear nothing at all. Not the shrieking siren, not the hum of the tires, not the click-tick-rattle of the equipment packed into the storage shelves and the cabinets to the right of her. She was as deaf as the dead. Instead of falling down, down into another brief darkness, as she expected, Agnes found herself drifting up. A frightening sense of weightlessness overcame her. She had never thought of herself as being tied to her body, as being knotted to bone and muscle, but now she felt tether snapping. Suddenly she was buoyant, unrestrained, floating up from the padded stretcher, until she was looking down on her body from the ceiling of the ambulance. Acute terror suffused her, a humbling perception that she was a fragile construct, something less substantial than mist, small and weak and helpless. She was filled with the panicky apprehension that she would be diffused like the molecules of a scent, dispersed into such a vast volume of air that she would cease to exist. Her fear was fed, too, by the sight of the blood that saturated the padding of the stretcher on which her body lay. So much blood. Oceans. Into the eerie hush came a voice. No other sound. No siren. No hum or swish of tires on rain-washed pavement. Only the voice of the paramedic. Her heart stopped. Far below Agnes, down there in the land of the living, light glimmered along the barrel of a hypodermic syringe in the hand of the paramedic, glinted from the tip of the needle. The cop had unzipped the top of her jogging suit and pulled up the roomy t-shirt she wore underneath it, exposing her breasts. The paramedic put aside the needle, having used it, and grabbed the paddles of a defibrillator. Agnes wanted to tell them that all their efforts would be to no avail, that they should cease and desist, be kind and let her go. She had no reason to stay here anymore. She was moving on to be with her dead husband and her dead baby, moving on to a place where there was no pain, where no one was as poor as Marina Elena Gonzalez, where no one lived in fear like her brothers Edom and Jacob, where everyone spoke a single language and had all the blueberry pies they needed. She embraced the darkness. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave a review on Spotify, leave a review on Podchaser, copy and paste that in the good pods, copy and paste that into Apple Podcasts. You can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast or on buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the good pods app. You can leave a tip. Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my dad,